0: Our plan for today uh, was a discussion between uh, myself and Haley, our Connections pastor, but uh, Haley's feeling under the weather, so Haley's not with us, and hopefully that means that this morning won't be half as good uh, without Haley, but you'll have to be the judge of that. I will do my best to uh, represent uh, what we've both collected as we uh, uh, for our talk today as we as we continue on an advent. So, hi everybody. It's just me. Sorry about that. All right. Um. So, what uh, we have been um, uh, talking about if you were if you joined us online for our, our brief uh, reflection and prayer time last week, uh, you'll have heard me mention that for Advent this year, the several weeks of uh, uh, leading up to Christmas, we are talking uh, our theme is economic justice and the Bible's two Christmas stories. So I briefly introduced this idea last week that there isn't actually a Christmas story, the Bible contains two different Christmas stories, or Jesus' birth narratives, as the biblical scholars call them. Uh, One is Matthew's birth narrative from the Gospel of Matthew. That's the one with the wise men following the star and uh, the fleeing from Herod to Egypt. Uh, then there, the second story is from Luke's gospel, and that's the one with the angel Gabriel visiting Mary and Elizabeth, and then uh, the manger and the shepherds. Uh, New Testament scholars Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan suggest that the Matthew and the Luke Christmas stories are overtures to their respective gospels. So, Matthew. Matthew's Christmas story is setting up what Matthew's gonna say in his whole gospel about Jesus, and then Luke's Christmas story is setting up what he's gonna make what he's gonna say about Jesus in his gospels. And the details are actually not necessarily consistent with each other. The details are consistent with their larger claims. They're supposed to give you like a teaser, a mini version of the larger thing they're about to say in their whole gospel. So sort of in this series, we're not just talking about the Christmas stories alone. We're talking about a way to understand Matthew's gospel or Luke's gospel, which is kind of a, a nice thing to kind of have in the back pocket. Like, what is the broader theme of this story of Jesus? So perhaps you come away with that. The idea is if you get the first chapter if you get the overture or the, the Christmas story, you'll get the whole thing. You get, you're primed to see it. Now, traditionally, we're familiar. With an engagement of one Christmas story that weaves Matthew's and Luke's accounts together, right? Like Christmas pageants and things like that, where the uh, all the shepherds and the wise men and Mary and Joseph and all the animals are together at the manger, right? That that's that, I think that's kind of a familiar a nativity scene, right? We've seen them everywhere if we've spent any time in churches. No doubt we've seen that before, and that weaving together is a beautiful thing. It's 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 an awesome uh, I think kind of tradition that we hold to and that reminds us what this season is about. And I love that. Uh, We've used that woven together story for many years for our Christmas carol service. And also, there's some really I think, important angles that we can see when we take this different approach. Not taking Matthew and Luke and weaving them together, the two Christmas stories, but taking them separately and trying to read them on their own terms. And uh, that's what we're trying for Advent this year. So the way we are doing that is uh, we are working two analogies. So I'll put my analogies up on the screen here as we think about them. The, uh, Luke, we're calling a protest song. We sang together Lift Every Voice and Sing this morning. Classic protest song deeply embedded in the experience of black Americans. Uh, So Luke is a protest song, like Lift Every Voice and Sing, if you will. And then Matthew, which we're going to talk more about next week, is a subversive drama. And my example for that is like Hamilton. Yeah, we're going to talk about Hamilton next week. Get ready. Um, So both a subversive drama and a protest song are really useful things for an oppressed people. So we're talking about the first century oppressed Jewish people who are under the thumb of a cruel, unforgiving Roman Empire back in in the first century CE, okay? But these two things, a protest song, and a subversive drama are used sort of differently. So the, the protest song, you like, you get it out in the open because you're enacting change from the margins, right? You're marching, you're at a demonstration, everybody's singing it together, your voices come together, and it gets really loud. Lift every voice and sing, and we're all we're we're trying to grab the powerful's attention with a protest song. That's a little bit of how Luke might be used. On the other side, we have the subversive drama, which is like sneaking a message in to the most institutional place possible. We're not marching in the streets. We're like, let's get on Broadway. Let's, let's get on the Hollywood big screen and let's sneak a message in there. And we're trying to backdoor our way into the powerful's consciousness with a subversive drama. So there's two different ways we can use this and both of those are really useful to an oppressed people. Both of those are really useful to those who want to stand in solidarity with oppressed peoples. Today, we're gonna to lean into the Luke side. But before we do that, I wanna talk about the other side of our theme. I mentioned we have two Christmas stories. Why are we talking about economic justice? and the Bible's two Christmas stories. Why is that our theme? And what we want to say is that when we look at the Christmas stories as these kind of overtures to their larger Gospels and not try to weave them together, we see something really important, again from our New Testament scholars who've helped me as we've put this together. They point out that before Jesus ever existed, there were individuals in the Roman world of the New Testament who were referred to with titles like Lord, Son of God, Redeemer of the world, Savior from sin, even God incarnate. There were people before Jesus ever existed that were referred to with phrases like that, with terms like that. Those people were the Roman emperors, the Caesars. So when Matthew and Luke and the early Jesus movement used these terms to refer to a Jewish peasant who's just like going around teaching, doesn't even have a home. He's a homeless Jewish peasant who just goes around teaching. They're applying these words that are supposed to be for Caesar to this Jewish peasant? That is quite a statement. That is quite a statement politically, and it's quite a statement economically. They say, our New Testament scholars say, if you don't understand Caesar, you can't understand Christ. Politics and economics are inescapably behind our Christmas story. We have a confrontation between two different programs for bringing people together, two different programs for so-called peace. One is actual peace. One is not peace at all. We have Caesar on one side, and we have Jesus on the other. On Caesar's side, we have peace through victory, which is really peace through violence. It's not peace. It's saying any amount of, like, dissent, you squash with an army. And that makes us feel like we're held together. But it's not really peace. But on the other side, on Jesus' side, we have peace through justice, which is actual peace. Looking on with moral integrity at what's happening and not just saying we're all kept together. On one side, we have the building of crosses on the other side, we have the bearing of crosses. On one side, we have Rome, the empire. On the other side, we have the kingdom of God, or as one theologian retranslated, it, the divine commonwealth. I like that. What if we, when we read the kingdom of God in the Bible, we define it the divine commonwealth? I really like that. Caesar is Lord versus Jesus is Lord. Top-down rule versus bottom-up influence. We have these confrontations going on behind the Christmas stories. So, in the 21st century, if we want to read those Christmas stories and be moved by them, be impacted by them, and let them shape who we are, we don't have a Caesar. We don't have an emperor today. So, does that mean this doesn't apply? Or what, maybe we can ask the question, what are the broken programs for peace today today? that Jesus is confronting? If we don't have Rome, the empire, and their broken program for peace, what do we have today? So this requires some interpretation, right? Some translation. We have to do our best to guess. Hopefully, the people who are guessing or translating or interpreting for you are trustworthy. I think we obviously must point to modern fascist and totalitarian regimes as something that Jesus is confronting with us. Obviously, we need to point to that. But I also want to encourage our church that in our world, the dominant program for supposed peace, which really is not peace, it's really violent, exploitative, I think that dominant program for peace is the top-down global economy. Let me tell you what I mean by that. This is not the violence of armies and soldiers, right? But the promises of the top-down global economy are sort of the same violence-disguised-as-peace language that we get from imperial Rome. So we hear things like, we're all connected by this global marketplace, right? We're all connected. Isn't that beautiful? The, we hear things like, the invisible hand of the market will, will, will mediate justly for everyone because it's, it's, it's not emotional, it's neutral, it's just inputs and outputs, transactions, right? It'll, it'll take care of everything, because it's not emotional. Put your trust in those at the top, and all of that wealth will trickle down to everybody else. That's what, we're, that's what we're often told. But the reality of the top-down economy is that the rich 1% who the system is for get what they need, while the rest just keep things going. The working class and the planet are exploited the middle class are kept on the hamster wheel by the promise of you too can someday be rich. Congratulate, you You too can someday be like those 1%. In 2021, do you know what the ratio of uh, CEO salary to average worker salary was in America? It was 398 to one. Can you let that sink in? the ratio of CEO salary to average worker salary in 2021 in America was 398 to 1. The average CEO makes 398 times more than the average worker who works for them. That is astronomical, right? So this is the realm of interpretation of translation. You do not have to believe. I'm, I'm just pitching you Vince's thoughts. You totally do not have to take this as gospel. But I think that our, one of the modern parallels for the first century Rome's empire of broken peace that Jesus confronts, I think one of the modern parallels that has to be mentioned is this top-down economy. And what I see as Jesus's alternative program for true peace, if we draw that modern parallel, is what I've heard some uh, theologians describe as a solidarity economy. I love this phrase, a solidarity economy in which the system exists for all stakeholders in that economy. So this means there's a zero-tolerance policy for exploiting people or exploiting, exploiting the planet. That is completely uncalled for because those are stakeholders in the system. The working class, the, the economy needs to serve the working class just like it serves the middle class and the rich. It needs to build wealth for the poor, not just offer social mobility to the middle class. And the system needs to serve the planet. We can't just use up our planet as a resource, but we need to see that this this is not just tools for humans to get rich, but the planet is the most important asset we have been gifted, and we must take care of it. Our economies must serve the planet. In a solidarity economy, the ratio between CEO salaries and employee salaries is not 398 to 1. And the middle class is not looking up you know, comparing themselves to the rich, but we're rather looking around in solidarity with the working class to ensure that everybody is receiving the same benefits. I, a solidarity economy does not mean that everything is flat. It doesn't mean that, like, there's no creativity or innovation and, and hard work is not rewarded. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean a one-to-one CEO to employee salary ratio. What if it, what if it could just mean 20 to one, right? What, even, even 100 to 1, if going from 398 to 1 to 100 to 1, that would change everything, wouldn't it? The world would be a fundamentally different place at a 100 to 1 CEO to worker ratio. It would be a fundamentally different place. What if we could get to that? A solidarity economy does not mean making a profit is bad. It means profit is shared equitably. So when we talk about the modern political and economic implications of Christmas, this is what I'm talking about. Jesus has a program for peace that offers true peace, and I think it looks much more like a solidarity economy than a top-down economy. That is, I think, the economic implications of the Christmas story for today. So... As we talk about Luke's Christmas story, this protest song, our, this is our analogy. What do we mean by Luke being a protest song? Well, this is jumping off one of the most powerful pieces in Luke's Christmas story, and it's known as Mary's song, or the Magnificant, if you uh, grew up in a, a mainline or Catholic tradition. You may have heard it referred to as the Magnificant. And it's uh, Mary's song. What we kind of imagine with... Um, uh, with uh, the modern understanding of social science and songs for, uh, c- for when kids are growing up or even when uh, prenatal, when babies are in the womb. Did you know that when you sing songs to babies in the womb, it impacts them for their, their entire lives? And there's this idea that like Mary's song is the song that formed Jesus in the womb. This is the song that helped shape who Jesus became. And the song is this. I'll read from Luke chapter 1. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, In remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. The writer and pastor Nadia Boltz Weber. Uh, tells a story of uh, visiting uh, a church uh, that, uh, she's, she's a pastor, but she's visiting another church, and she sees that the service was going to uh, include the Magnificant in their, uh, as, as part of their, their worship service, and she was very excited about this, and they sang a modern uh, rendering of the Magnificant, but she said she was so distraught when they only sang the first half of it about Uh, About Mary saying, Thank you for what you've done for me. But then the real turn, did you notice? We went for. The Lord looks at me and calls me blessed too. The Lord brings down the proud and lifts up the lowly. The Lord uh, feeds the hungry and sends the rich away empty. There's this turn from very personal things to very communal things. And Nadia Boltzweber, like, just regrets. It's like, oh, how could we talk about the personal side but not talk about those bigger matters of when this becomes a protest song? And there is where I think we get this idea of. The, the, the entire Gospel of Luke being a protest song. We can take Mary's song, this piece of the birth narrative of Jesus, as sort of a picture of what the, the, what the Christmas story is, and the Christmas story then becomes a picture of what the entire Gospel is. It's almost as if Mary's song sets us up for the entire rest of the Gospel. Powerful words attributed to her. I remember... Um, my first experiences with protest songs is uh, growing up in Evanston, Illinois. Learning in school, "We Shall Overcome." Did anybody learn "We Shall Overcome" in school? That was uh, that was sort of an important part of growing up. Is you would learn this protest song and you would learn the history of it and you would learn how it was sung at marches and demonstrations and uh, and how it 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 for me as, as being such a young kid that protest song being a part of my education it has become a formation of who I. Am Am. It has shaped me today. Uh, part of who I am is because I heard those verses of we shall overcome ev- like every year for multiple years running as a kid. Or more modern examples of uh, maybe slightly different than a protest song we'd sing at uh, a demonstration. But I wonder if anybody, uh, uh, was, uh, anybody was, was watching when uh, Childish Gambino Donald Glover's This Is America came out a few years back, do anybody remember this? Uh, the, the song was released on SNL, uh, Saturday Night Live, uh, on a Saturday night, and then it was like simultaneously released on YouTube, and then went like bonkers, it was like one of the most viral things that year, of everybody just kept watching it. And I Remember, we were setting up for church here the Sunday morning after it was released, and somebody was like, "Who is uh, one of our volunteers?" This morning was like, "Did anybody see Donald Glover on Saturday Night Live yesterday with This Is America?" And it is this very intense. I mean, it's not for the faint of heart. Uh, video that really like you know makes you reckon with the gun violence in America's history, and especially done to black individuals in America. And uh, this, is, but This America, it's I mean, it is it is catchy. It keeps you in. You are like riveted watching this video. And I, just, I will never forget it because it was like, no, I, I, I didn't hear what happened. And we put it on the big screen as we're setting up and we were all just like, oh my gosh, like, this, this is important. Like, the, something just happened. This is a new protest song for our generation. So protest songs, they form who we become. And we see Mary's song as this protest song that forms who Jesus becomes. And as we read back, we can see it as a way to understand what the entire Gospel of Luke is about. This is the vibe of the entire Gospel. Like if The, the, we, we take, the, 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 the whole Gospel takes the, in, uh, the environment of the Roman Empire as this sort of granted thing. We are telling the story of Jesus amidst this big, powerful empire that has all the cards, and we don't have all of the cards, And what do we do to live counterculturally within that? It's not so much a book about revolution as it is a book about protesting to make things better as best you can, given that that larger system may not change. And so there are stories throughout the Gospel of Luke that grab at that. There's this story of the, the, the parable of the persistent widow that it says goes to an unjust judge who doesn't care for people and... And again and again and again asks for justice for a situation for herself. And the 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 moral of the story in the gospel is such such an interesting one. It says the unjust judge finally granted this woman her justice, not because he had a change of heart, but because he was bothered by her so much. And he just wanted her to get off his back. And that is sort of a, a picture of what Luke is all about. It's sometimes the wider Structures aren't going to change. They're not going to get better. There aren't going to be changes of hearts. But can we protest and live as counterculturally as possible in the meantime to see changes? Can we get it from 398 to 1 CEO to worker salary ratio to 100 to 1? Can we protest a little bit to just get it a little bit better? Or maybe a lot bit better? There's the story in Luke of Zacchaeus. I wonder if anybody's ever heard the story of Zacchaeus from the Gospel of Luke. And Zacchaeus is this interesting character who's somewhere in between the oppressed Jewish people and the Roman Empire, because he is a Jew, but he's kind of sold his soul to the devil, according to the other Jews, because he's a tax collector. He's a tax collector for the Romans. And so he kind of lives in this middle ground in between the working class, the poor, and the rich, who hold all of the cards and the power. He's sort of a parallel, as we read Zacchaeus today, for the middle class, for somebody like me, a white guy with power, somewhere in between the working poor and the rich. And Zacchaeus is so moved by Jesus that he decides to stop participating in the exploitative practices of the Roman tax collection system, and he chooses solidarity with the poor instead. He redistributes his wealth. He pays reparations to those that he has wronged to demonstrate his change in heart. And Mary's song sets us up to see this. The the proud are brought down, the lowly are lifted up, the hungry are fed, and the rich are sent away empty. So, all of this big, big stuff about the economy, <laughs> all of this big stuff about what does it mean to live in a solidarity economy rather than a top-down economy? What does it mean that Luke can be this, this, this asset to us as a protest song, this gospel that maybe we've heard read hundreds of times by now, that it can be this amazing bolster of a move toward economic justice? What do do I mean? How can we get as practical as possible? I want to give some examples of what ways we can practically use Luke as a protest song to fight for economic justice. One idea that Haley recommended was that when we feel tempted to compare, to shift comparison to critique. Now, I think this is especially important for those of us in our church who would, uh, would fall socioeconomically in the middle class. That's going to be a lot of us in this church. I remember just the other day, Kezia and I, my, my wife and I, talking about our kitchen and feeling kitchen envy for friends of ours. Anybody ever felt kitchen envy? Oh, man, they have such nice things, you know? And, oh, gosh, it just, oh, if we could only fix this one thing. And so quickly... the the energy for a middle-class person like like me and like my wife is the energy is toward comparison. We look around at those who are kind of close to us so we can compare. And of course, social media makes this even easier, right, to compare. The energy, the gravity is all toward comparison. When you feel tempted to compare, my encouragement is to shift that toward critique. Think about Mary's song, the rich, being sent away empty, the hungry being fed? What if we, instead of comparison, instead of kind of, you know, just being swept up with that, we try our best to shift our energies toward, do you know what? This system is broken. I am being fed all of these things by people with so much more money than me that are promising that me that all of it will trickle down to me if I just fall in lockstep with what they're selling me. And if I can shift that energy away from comparing myself to those who I think have more than me, or like I could, oh, they're so close to me, I could have the same thing, and instead critique the system that is keeping me on that hamster wheel, that can start to shift things for me. Moving from comparison, when I feel tempted to compare, to critique. It is hard work. It is not easy. It will not come naturally to you. Everything that is natural to us is this water we swim in of the top-down economy that just sells us everything. And man, those things are cool, and those other people I know, their kitchens are so cool. But if I can try my best to shift that energy away from comparison toward critique. Another recommendation, I remember years ago, Uh, my wife and I were being really moved when we were driving home one day from work together listening to an NPR story, this random NPR story. Uh, I don't know if anybody else in the entire world was moved as much as we were listening to this random NPR story, but I guess we were in the right place at the right time. It, It was interviews with random Chicagoans about what I think at the time, this was almost a decade ago now, I think it was a ballot measure that was upcoming for like the, upcoming election, and it was something, the ballot measure would raise taxes on middle class folks, someone like me, in order to offer more protection to working class folks, okay, so that's what, was, that's what was going on. And the assumption behind all of the media discussions always around things like this is, it, is that, you know, this is probably gonna have a hard time passing because, of course, people always vote according to their own self-interest. That was the assumption behind it. But this one woman who's interviewed, in this, in this random NPR story, she, she says like, they're asking her like, you know, what do you think about this, uh, this uh, um, uh, ballot measure? And she says, oh yeah, of course I'm gonna vote for it. I make too much money for it to benefit me, but I can vote for things that don't benefit me. Like, that, that's actually, the, I, I can do that. And I remember like, she, she said this so, with such clarity and, and it was so simple that Kesey and I were just like, like almost like in tears afterwards. We were like, yes! Yes, we can vote for things that don't affect us personally, that don't benefit us personally, because they, have, they affect somebody else, they benefit somebody else, that's a good thing. I don't have to like only vote for my own self-interest. Who died and said that I only have to vote for my own self-interest? Can't I care about other human beings? Can't I have higher values than just my own selfish interest? Of course I can, because I'm a human being. And, and we just heard that, we were like, yeah, random lady being interviewed on this NPR story, we don't even know who you are, but you rock. And that has stayed with me, that just listening to that story has stayed with me. We were just so moved, like, why is the automatic assumption, like, why do we even decide that self-interest means that you're not rooting for somebody else's uh, self-interest? What if self-interest is other people's interest, right? Like what if we are all interconnected and related? And for me to care about, anu- like, especially those who are less fortunate, than me for, for me to care about their plight is actually good for my own soul. That makes sense, right? <laughs> That's not such a stretch. And yet, the top-down economy that we live in squeezes those feelings out of me because the moment we come to matters of transactions, inputs, outputs, bottom lines, my bank account, I have to only act for my own self-interest. It's just assumed that I would. The hard part about this, everybody, I'm going to speak for myself as somebody who's solidly middle class, is that it is on the middle class to choose solidarity with the rest of the 99%, with the working class and with the poor, rather than, it's on us to do that, to to not be protective with what we have. Think of ourselves in competition with the working class. It is on us to do it. The cruelty of the system is that the 1% can change things for the working class in an instant, can't they? Remember, if we went from 398 you know, to 1, if that ratio, to 100 to 1, how much more wealth would be shared if that was distributed equitably? An exorbitant amount of money. Things could change in an instant, but it's not happening. And so the cruel thing about our system is that even though all the cards are over here. It's kind of on middle-class people like us. And that's not really fair. It is not fair at all. It's it's actually unjust that I have to consume so conscientiously, which is so much more expensive, when, you know, I have generational wealth, but it's not like I have a ton of discretionary income at the end of the month, right? It is unfair that it falls to middle-class people. It's unfair that we have to make the biggest purchases, investments of our lives, like buying a home, mindful of the fact that if we do just what's according to the rich as wise, then we, you know, just kind of continue to make the rich rich and the poor poor That is unjust. The onus should not be on the middle class, but this is the way it is. And I think Luke's protest song encourages us, do not double down on protectionism in response to the unfairness. Do not dumble down on competition and comparison in response to the unfairness. Choose solidarity with the working class and the poor. See that the hungry are fed and the rich are the ones sent away empty. It's an earworm, right? It's a protest song. Get stuck in your head. Lift every voice and sing. We're all going to be singing that for the rest of the week, right? Because Because we sang it this week. It's going to be stuck in our head like an earworm. And that's what we want to do with Mary's song with Luke's Christmas story, that the proud be brought down and the lowly lifted up. I have to believe there's strength in numbers. If I mean, think about it. If, 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 if the middle class sided with the, like was, was, was in solidarity with the working class and the poor, it's 99% of the population against 1%, right? But we've got to do it. I have to believe there's strength in numbers, but it is hard. And then, oh, man, that energy is toward comparison. Can we do it? It's hard. It's hard. But that's my encouragement for us this week as we read Luke. All right. We have more here. Haley was going to have some awesome stuff. But we're going to save that for another time. And um, I'm going to pray for us as we come to a close here. Does that sound okay? All right. Whew, I got to take a deep breath. I got excited. I got pumped. I got I get angry. Does anybody, does anybody feel anger coming off of me? Anybody feel anger rising up in you? It's okay if you're feeling angry. I'm feeling angry. You can feel angry in the room. Yeah. There's, I, I, I think that that's a little bit, like if we don't see the anger in the Luke Christmas story, we're missing the point, right? If we just see it as, as this sentimental, sweet story, then we're missing some of it. There's an anger in this. There's a confrontation in this between Caesar and Jesus top-down and bottom-up, feed the hungry and save the rich, you know? There's a, there's a confrontation here, and when we read it this way, we can see that. And I think next week we'll, we'll see all the more as we look at Matthew, the subversive drama. Well, let me pray. Let me, let me call out a little bit of that combative energy. God, that is, can be a good thing, that combative energy. We long for something that is more equitable and just, a system that serves all people. We're not longing for something flat. We're, we're, not longing, for, we're, we're longing for something that is, that where everybody gets what they need. That is equity. That is fairness, where everybody gets what they need. Not where everybody gets the same, where everyone gets what they need we are longing for that god and as this week here at brownline church we have stirred up the pot with thoughts about that stuff we pray that in our marking of this advent season and christmas that we would see the connections here that as we enter into as we're not entering in, we're already in a time where there's as much announcement as ever of things being sold to us, that we would remember that call to be in solidarity with the working class and the poor around us. Call us to be in solidarity with the working class and the poor here within our community of Brownline Church. Call us to be in solidarity with the working class and the poor here in Lincoln Square, in the the city of Chicago, in the cities and the neighborhoods where any of us are joining from. Call us to be in solidarity with the working class and the poor, to look around and not up. Protect us when we feel tempted to compare because it is so easy and all of the energy is toward that and give us eyes to critique instead, give us courage to make choices that, that put everyone's self-interest on the table and not just our own. That story of this random lady doing that is moving because she was ho-hum about it and we should all be ho-hum about it. It's not that crazy to put other people's interest. We do it every day with our kids. We do it every day with our aging parents. We do it every day with our partners or our roommates. And we can do it in a broader, more communal scale in our entire economy. But it takes us making choices. And so encourage us how to make those choices in our day-to-day this week. We thank you for the story of Jesus, the story of you coming to us, and for the the protest songs that formed Jesus in the womb. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.